Hello and welcome to our podcast, Within the Mist, a hidden place where we walk into the dark and clouded unknown. We are your guides today for this journey, Gary, and my wife and co-host, Goldie Ann. Hello, Goldie Ann. Hi, Gary. How are you today? I'm fine. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Yes, as this <laughs> uh, podcast episode comes out, it'll be the January the 1st, the start of the new year, 2024. So what do you have planned for 2024? Well, uh, I'm energized about improving the show and expanding the work we do with more episodes, uh, including we're going to restart the Thursday interview session. So there'll be two episodes a week. That's cool. I'm also, I have two books that are finished that are being edited so that those will be released. We are going to start doing more videos, so we're going to start visiting locations of paranormal encounters, so we can start doing videos on that. Oh, that's the part I can't wait for. And the biggest thing is, is that we are going to start doing more and more conventions and public appearances to include the Bigfoot Conference here in Florida in June. Cool. So I need to start collecting a list of all the paranormal conferences and events so that we can start attending these. So you're going to see a lot more of our faces as the year goes by so that by the end of the year, Within the Mist is going to be a very busy organization. But first, a word from our sponsor. Welcome back. So Goldie Ann, with the new year, I wanted to tell you about a friend I have who got arrested for saying that he was an axe murderer. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah, sadly, though, it turns out he was just a really bad guitarist. Oh, my God. That's horrible. Well, I got to start off the year so that I can build up. Mm-hmm. Are you excited? Oh, definitely. Good. For today's story... It involves tales of brutality and murder of the worst kind. This will lead to a series of events that may be upsetting to some of our listeners. We are storytellers of cryptids, ghosts, and other mysteries. We don't intend to scare our listeners on purpose. Well, maybe just a little. Listener discretion is always advised. And with that, the main source for the little amount of information that I got on this subject was found in Miriam Davis's book entitled The Axeman of New Orleans, The True Story, with an Amazon link in our show notes. Another great source is Axeman's Jazz by Ray Celestin. Both of these cover the topic and the events that surrounded The Axeman of New Orleans perfectly and are highly recommended for reading. Did you know that this is one of my favorite subjects? No, I didn't. Yes. Uh, why is it one of your favorite subjects? Well, one for one thing, it's in New Orleans. You True, know. you are from Louisiana. <laughs> um, and it's just it's fascinating, the myth, the legend, everything behind him. And so we begin. An unidentified American serial killer active in New Orleans, Louisiana, and the surrounding communities from May 1918 to October 19. Press reports during the height of the public panic about the killings mentioned similar murders even as early as 1911. 
The serial killer claimed not to be a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. Since the Axeman was never identified and the murders remained unsolved to this day, there are some who believe he may have been telling the truth about being a murderer's ghost. Join us as we explore the mists of Louisiana to tell of the Axeman of New Orleans. Chapter 1 The Maggio Murders Andrew Maggio was a barber in the bustling city of New Orleans and he had just received his draft notice for World War I. It was May 22, 1918 and the war loomed over the minds of every man and woman. Despite Andrew's reluctance to go to war, he went out drinking that night, determined to drown his fears and worries. As he stumbled back to the place he shared with his brother Jake, he was unaware of the danger lurking in the shadows. His senses dulled by alcohol, he failed to notice anything unusual. But soon enough, the consequences of his actions would have come crashing down on him like a tidal wave compared to the draft notice. Jake and Andrew's rooms were connected to their brother's Joseph's house, where he lived with his wife Catherine. Jake would be jolted awake at 4 o'clock in the morning by strange groaning sounds from Joseph and Catherine's room echoing through the wall. Jake, the brother, felt a chill run down his spine as he realized it was not human sounds he was hearing. Without hesitation, he leaped out of bed and pounded on the wall between them, desperate for a response. There was only silence in return. With growing dread, Jake repeatedly slammed his fists against the wall again and again until his knuckles were bleeding and his voice gave out from screaming into the wall. Panic surged through the brother's vein as he tried to rouse Andrew who was still heavily intoxicated and difficult to wake. In a rush of adrenaline, Jake managed to drag Andrew to his feet and the two stumbled into Joseph's home. Their fears were confirmed when they saw the signs of a fourth entry. A wooden panel had been chiseled out from the kitchen door and lay on the ground. The chisel discarded on top of it. With the air thick with danger, they cautiously entered the house, hearts pounding with trepidation of what they might find inside. The two men burst in the house through the kitchen, quickly navigating past the bathroom and into Joseph and Catherine's room. There, his lifeless body lay sprawled on the bed, legs dangling over the edge, and Catherine lay twisted on top of him. As they approached, Joseph weakly attempted to sit up, but collapsed, his body too damaged to move. The brothers frantically checked on him, horrified to find deep, jagged gashes covering his head and blood pooling around his motionless form. In a state of shock, they noticed Catherine's limp body. Her once beautiful features were now distorted by death. Without hesitation, they called the police in a panic as reality had sunk in. Their brother and his wife were gone forever. 
Corporal Arthur Hattner was the first on the scene, arriving just moments before the wailing ambulance. But it was already too late, and the lifeless body of Joseph lay still surrounded by the blood. As Hattner frantically called for backup, he interrogated the Maggio brothers, their faces twisted with guilt and fear. The officers scanned the area for any shred of evidence, any clue as to who had done this. His heart raced as he realized the severity of the situation. And the next day, in bold black letters, the front page of the Times Piccany screamed the headline of the day. Couple brutally murdered in home behind store. Beneath it, a chilling photograph depicted the death chamber. The once peaceful bedroom now tainted with blood and terror. For 15 years, the Maggios had been happily married, running their small grocery store and bar room on the notorious corner of Upperline and Magnolia Street. But that morning, their lives ended savagely. The police investigation revealed that the double homicide had occurred just before dawn, leaving behind a trail of unimaginable violence. Officer Hattner's stomach churned as he took in the gruesome scene. There, a mountain of torn and bloodied men's clothing lied in a heap on the bathroom floor, surrounded by splatters of crimson that seeped into every crevice. An ominous cast iron bathtub loomed in the center. An axe propped up against its side with traces of fresh blood still clinging to its sharp edge. Someone had attempted to clean up the evidence, but still there was a lingering metallic scent and stains that told of the story of their death. As Hattner re-entered the bedroom, his heart pounding in his chest, his eyes immediately fell on the gruesome scene. A straight razor, caked in blood, was lying on the bed amidst the lifeless bodies. As the killer must have used the axe to strike Mrs. Maggio's head before brutally slicing her throat with the razor, so deep that it left her nearly decapitated. Joseph Maggio also bore the same axe wounds, but it appeared he may have been attacked last as he laid sprawled half out of bed with Catherine's body draped over him. Given the position of their bodies, it was impossible to tell what had exactly happened for sure. The only thing that was clear though, the killer had used the razor on Joseph and added to the horrific scene before them. And the axe wounds were just to add further brutality. A crowd outside grew in size and volume as the bodies were removed. Their curious eyes fixated on the macabre scene before them. One woman emerged from the crowd, her voice trembling as she told the investigators that she had seen Andrew Maggio lurking outside in the early morning. Jake and Andrew were hauled off for questioning, their pleas of innocence falling on deaf ears as they were locked away in separate cells. Though Jake was eventually released, Andrew remained trapped in the confines of prison walls branded as a cold-blooded killer by those who refused to believe his innocence. 
What had happened was that the police discovered that the razor that was used to slice open the throats of Joseph and Catherine Maggio belonged to Andrew. His employee had witnessed him taking it from his barber shop at 123 South Rampart Street. He had no answer for how it ended up in his brother's room. The evidence against Andrew was damning as two witnesses and the murder weapon in his possession. It seemed as if the walls were closing in on him, trapping him in a web of guilt and fear. The door to Joseph's house was wide open, a gaping mall leading to an eerie emptiness. Inside, police found his grocery safe standing exposed and violated, its contents scattered across the room. The remnants of a robbery littered the scene, yet strangely, money and jewelry were left untouched in their usual places. If this had been a robbery, the thief must have changed his mind before taking the goods. The brothers were adamant that Joseph always kept the safe locked, but there was no signs of a forced entry. Somehow, the thief had opened the combination without any violence. Then, he looked at the materials inside and then left them scattered on the floor. The investigators' blood ran cold as they realized that the killer must have been someone familiar with the layouts of the house and the safe. In fact, the axe that had been used in the gruesome murders belonged to Joseph and Catherine themselves, sending shivers down your spine as they pieced together the horrifying events that had transpired in that bedroom. With the bodies barely cold, Andrew was released from prison, the justice system failing to connect him to the actual murders. Despite multiple witnesses and a damning crime scene, the evidence against him was deemed insufficient. But as the days passed, a new discovery emerged pointing to a different suspect who had evaded capture years before. There was anger and frustration of those left behind burning like a raging inferno, fueled by the failure of justice and the looming threat of a killer still on the loose. It was two detectives who were trudging through the desolate streets with their shoes crunching on broken glass and debris. They approached the scene of the Maggio murders and their eyes scanned for any sign of new evidence that might have been missed. Suddenly, one stopped in his tracks, pointing to a message scrawled in bright red chalk on the pavement underneath the debris. It said, Mrs. Maggio will sit up tonight just like Mrs. Tony. The message seemed ominous almost as if it was taunting them. They carefully copied down the words, realizing the gravity of their meaning. This was no ordinary crime. This was a calculated act of violence with a twisted motive they did not understand. But before they could even piece together the puzzle, they heard chilling whispers from passerbys about similar messages appearing at other murder scenes. It was clear that these killings were part of a larger, more sinister plan, 
and time was running out to catch the madman responsible before he struck again. Even worse, these seem to be connected to earlier crimes in the area. I guess I shouldn't use the word awesome. Um. <laughs> well, you are a true crime fan, so I guess your vocabulary is a little different with these kind of subjects. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty fascinating, you know, how deep it goes in and how much they could get from just the crime scene. The entire place was laid out with all the evidence left open for them to see, but none of it made sense. Like, why was nothing really stolen, even though the safe was open? Right. Why were they so brutally murdered instead of just killed and then left there? Well, he just knew that he'd never be caught. That's what he felt. And he definitely was showing off. Yeah. Even more, it might have been connected to Chapter 2, seven years earlier. Let's go. In 1911, it was a year of terror and bloodshed. There had not been one, not two, but possibly three brutal axe murders. The victims were all Italian grocers, much like Maggio who had been lying peacefully in their beds until they were violently attacked by an unknown assailant who entered through a secret panel in the back door. Well, maybe he was upset over the rise of grocery prices. I know I would be, but I don't think I would take it to this extreme. Now, despite countless efforts, these 1911 cases went unsolved, leaving detectives scratching their heads over the cryptic scribbles left at each of the crime scene. Rumors swirled about a possible connection between the victims, haunting the minds of those involved in the investigation. The first victim was simply known as Crudy, a lonely man with no wife to mourn him. The second was Rossetti, whose life was brutally taken along with his beloved wife. And then there was Chiambra, Tony to those who knew him, who met the same fate as his wife at the hands of the axe killer. Now, in 1918, the police were left to wonder if the mysterious message scribbled in chalk had something to do with Mrs. Tony, and if perhaps it wasn't just the men who were being targeted. It seemed that the women may also be endangered, trapped, in the crosshairs of a madman's vengeance. Stories swirled through the tight-knit Italian community, whispers of a sinister connection to the mafia. The missing individuals were all of the Italian descent, and it was speculated that they had crossed the wrong people. Perhaps they had not paid their dues or failed to repay borrowed money. Fearful citizens sought police protection as stories circulated about a clandestine group known as the Black Hand. This was a splinter faction of the notorious mafia believed to be responsible for the recent string of grisly murders in 1911's New Orleans. In the city of the time, organized crime reigned supreme, an all-powerful force that left a bloody trail in its wake. In 1890, police chief David Hennessy was ruthlessly gunned down near his home, a victim of the Mafia's wrath. His crime? Threatening to expose the criminal records of high-ranking members at an upcoming trial. 
and despite arrests being made, justice was thwarted as jury members were terrorized and bribed into acquitting each suspect. The citizens of New Orleans were enraged by this blatant corruption and took matters into their own hands. A furious mob stormed the prison, determined to extract revenge on those they felt responsible for Chief Hennessy's death. Eleven men were dragged out into the street and lynched. A brutal message to the organized crime syndicate and their reign of terror that would not be tolerated any longer. The citizens had reached their breaking point. However, despite efforts to eradicate organized crime, the Black Hand still held a tight grip in 1911. This shadowy society was aptly named, for those who defied its demands were met with a haunting message in the form of black handprints, a dire warning of the violent consequences to come. Never heard about that. To me, it kind of feels like it's an Italian version of the ninjas. Yeah, yeah. They were assassins that were being sent out by the mafia to kill those that had crossed them. And it, hiding in the shadows, they were very active in the 1911s. In fact, countless Italians were coerced in giving up their hard-earned wages to this ruthless group. And those who refused were subjected to relentless persecution and even murder. Rumors swirled about the secret assassination school run by the Black Hand, where members were trained in the art of intimidation and terror. As more brutal events occurred, such as the gruesome murders of the Maggio family, resembling past killings linked to the Black Hand, whispers of a resurgence began to spread like wildfire igniting panic and dread among all the people who heard them. Did they know for a fact it was them? No, it could never be proven. In fact, you, they can't even prove the Black Hand existed after 1907. But that is kind of part of the mystique of the Black Hand itself, is that it is a secret organization of assassins. Right. So, of course, you wouldn't know for sure if they existed or not. But it was the rumors of the time in New Orleans that the Black Hand was still around. Chapter 3, Lovers and Haters The city was beginning to recover from the brutal massacre of the Maggio family. And still, on June 6, a new wave of terror swept through. John Zanka, a bread delivery man, arrived at the grocery store of his regular customer, Louis Bassumer, only to find it eerily locked up and abandoned. This wasn't like Mr. Bassumer, a 59-year-old Polish immigrant who always rose early to receive the bread deliveries. A sense of foreboding washed over John as he peered through the barred windows, wondering what horrors lay inside the grocery store. Zanka's heart pounded as he approached the side door, desperately hoping to find someone inside. As he knocked, the sound of movement from within brought a glimmer of hope. But when the Polish grocer swung open the door, Zanka was met with a horrifying sight. His friend's face was covered in blood, his eyes wild with fear and pain. Basumer's voice shook as he explained that he had been attacked and with trembling hands he pointed towards the bedroom where Zanka discovered the source of the blood. 
Basumer's mistress lay motionless on the bed, her head gruesomely wounded with drenched in the crimson liquid. The floor around her was littered with bloody footprints leading to a discarded wig, revealing the true identity of Basumer's quote-unquote wife. A wave of revulsion and dread washed over Zanka as he realized the depths of deceit and violence that had unfolded before him. He fumbled for the phone, desperate to call the police. But Basumer grabbed his arm, his eyes pleading to contact his private physician instead. Torn between loyalty and duty, Zanka's hand shook as he called for help and the sounds of silence began to grow louder in the distance. We need an ambulance, he shouted into the receiver, his voice trembling with fear and urgency as he prayed it wasn't too late for the two victims who were now motionless on the ground. The investigators arrived and were met with the all-too-familiar scene, a back door pried open with brute force and a rusted hatchet used as the murder weapon. Basumer was a recent transplant to the city and not even Italian. But there in the bathroom was the bloody hatchet. And despite being conscious, he could not give any description of the attacker or the vicious attack that had taken place. As for the woman victim, Anna Harriet Lowe, she lay battered and broken in the bedroom, fighting for her life as she was taken to the hospital. The intensity and horror of this crime scene sent chills down the spines of the people involved. Wild accusations consumed Anna's last breaths in the hospital room. Each one was more damning than the last. She spoke of being attacked by a mulatto, but then she changed her story to accuse her lover Basumer of wielding the axe and being involved as a German spy in a conspiracy. The tension of war hung heavy in the air, making these allegations actually seem plausible to the authorities. As Basumer emerged from the hospital, his body was still weak and battered from the vicious attacks. Bit by bit, they pieced together a terrifying theory. That Basumer had orchestrated the attack on himself in order to cover up a dark and deadly domestic dispute. Despite forensic methods being used then, no one thought to dust for fingerprints in the Basumer or Maggio homes. The bloody footprints that had been found at the crime scene were never mentioned again, leaving a mystery as to their origin and significance. Lowe and Basumer both claimed to have walked over them after being attacked, and still their story seemed increasingly dubious as the investigation continued. They arrested Basumer for murder, Yet, it was clearly obvious that he was not the New Orleans Axeman, not a spy, just a simple grocer who was leading a double life. That's not simple. <laughs> wow. And compared to what the public and the newspapers were trying to say, yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I, why would she say that it was him, though? My thoughts on this was that her story changed so much that I think that she was having brain injuries. And we don't know what her 
psychological status was before the attack. But with so much trauma and not actually knowing who attacked her, she was probably jumping at any shadows that was suggested to her. Yeah. So like everyone became a boogeyman to her. She saw, you know, uh, the black man that worked for her boyfriend immediately thought it was him. Then it was the lover. And then, you know, she even threatened at one point that the police chief was trying to keep her from telling the truth. She was quite paranoid uh, to her dying day there in the hospital. Wow. Chapter four, no child spared. It had been two months that passed since the nightmarish events at Basumer's grocery, but the horror was far from over for Edward Schneider. Exhausted from working late at his office on August 5th, the same day that Anna Lowe met her untimely death in the hospital, he arrived home eager to see his pregnant wife and offer her some much needed relaxation. As he swung open the door, there was a chilling silence that greeted him. The husband cried out for his wife, his heart pounding only to be met with an eerie emptiness. Panic rose in his chest as he searched every inch of their home looking for any sign of his beloved wife. As a sense of dread washed over Edward, he stepped into their bedroom. His heart stopped at the sight of his wife lying on their bed, drenched in blood, her face contorted in pain. A gaping wound on her head and missing teeth told the gruesome story. She'd been attacked and with shaking hands, Edward rushed to her side to feel for a pulse. Miraculously, she was still alive despite the wounds. Wow. The man frantically called for help, desperation creeping into his voice as he begged for an ambulance and the police. Mrs. Schneider was in the hospital for days recovering from her wounds. Her frail body was hooked up to tubes and machines as she fought for her life. And when she finally regained consciousness, she could barely speak, her voice raspy and weak. She struggled to remember the details of the brutal attack that left her scarred and broken. All that she could recall was darkness seeming to come from everywhere to envelop her as a looming figure. A shadow towered over her and a glint of metal in its hand before it came crashing down with a deafening thud on her head. Then, everything went dark once again as Mrs. Schneider slipped into unconsciousness, trapped in a never-ending cycle of torment and nightmares. Miraculously, the brutal attack did not harm her unborn child, and despite being confined to the sterile hospital room, she fought against the pain and exhaustion for a week until she was finally able to give birth to a precious daughter her body trembling with both relief and fear as she cradled the tiny bundle in her arms. The newspaper headlines screamed in bold warning of a terror lurking in the streets of New Orleans. The ominous question, is an ax man on the prowl? This title sent shivers down the spines of every resident. In the wake of panic, axes and chisels were discovered outside multiple homes leaving behind a trail of paranoia and suspicion. Everyone jumped at shadows. 
Some even claim to have encountered a potential intruder as they narrowly escaped the clutches of a sinister being. Five days since the Schneider attack, terror in the town was still palpable. On August 10th, another unsuspecting woman was confronted by a dark figure lurking in her home. So we've moved on from grocery stores and Italians and men. Correct. Now he is focusing his attack on pretty much whoever is available and able to come and go like a shadow. In this case, Pauline and Mary Bruno were rudely awakened by deafening thumps that seemed to originate from their Uncle Joseph's room in their house. As Pauline sat up in her bed, her eyes were met with the chilling sight of a tall, dark figure looming over her. She let out a blood-curdling scream as she scrambled out of bed, catching a glimpse of him fleeing down the hall. Later, when recounting the harrowing experience to a reporter, Pauline shuddered at the memory of his seemingly supernatural speed and agility. It was as if he had wings. Quote, He moved so swiftly and effortlessly, it was like he wasn't even human. This ghost escaped, but the sound of her scream echoed through the halls and Joseph Romano burst into a room with a frenzied urgency. But instead of help, he brought a scene of horror. His nightshirt was drenched in blood with deep gases etched across his face. In a raspy voice, he fell to his knees and his final words to Pauline were, I don't know who did this. With shaking hands, he instructed her to call Charity Hospital and collapsed to the floor, barely clinging to life for the next two agonizing days. When police arrived, they approached the door. The sturdy panel had been viciously chiseled out, just like before, revealing a gaping small hole, but large enough for the stranger to sneak in. In the middle of the yard lay an axe, its sharp blade still gleaming with fresh blood left abandoned by the murderer. But what chilled them even more was the realization that Romano was a gentle Italian barber who was not even safe within the walls of his own home. So like you said, he's kind of branching out from grocers and other uh, ethnicities, but he still seems to have a preference for Italians. The bedroom had been torn apart Drawers overturned and belongings scattered in a frenzy of destruction. Fear gripped the hearts as police realized someone had targeted this innocent man, leaving behind only chaos and terror in his wake. Now, panic gripped the city of New Orleans as news spread of a ruthless killer on the loose, who was able to break into unsuspecting victims' homes while they slept, without making a sound. The citizens were on high alert, constantly watching for mysterious figures lurking in the dark. Reports flooded the police department with supposed sightings and disturbing evidence. One resident, a grocer, discovered a blood-stained wood chisel left outside his door. Another recounted finding their back door gouged out 
and an axe left menacingly on their lawn. When one brave homeowner fired shots through the door at suspecting sounds, the police arrived to find clear signs that someone was desperately trying to break in. However, the bullets found no target. The entire city was consumed by fear and paranoia as they awaited for the next attack from this elusive and dangerous intruder. Despite the seriousness of the situation, investigators were met with a barrage of outlandish stories from the residents of New Orleans. It seemed everyone had their own version of the events and it was nearly impossible to discern the truth from fiction. Among the wild tales, they even heard whispers of the Axeman, now known as an almost mythical creature, spreading fear and chaos in their wake. Police scoured scenes and find no information or trace of evidence to identify the malicious intruder. No fingerprints were left behind despite using every method available and searching with eagle-eyed precision. The victims were a random selection of merchants, including mostly grocers, but showed no discernible pattern in their attack. The police began to fear that what they had on their hands was the twisted work of a psychopath, or perhaps a network of depraved individuals, bringing thoughts back to the black hand. It was almost unnerving how effortlessly the Axeman could slip in and out of any location like a shadow or a ghost gliding through solid walls. His presence left no trace despite leaving behind the tools of his trade. There was no details to cling to for the victims trembling in fear. How do you catch a being described as only a dark, looming figure? with an aura of something from another world. The city of New Orleans held its breath waiting for the next strike of the notorious Axeman. But as months passed without a single report, people began to let their guard down and believed that he had finally left town or he had completed his bloody mission. With the end of World War I, there was a sense of relief and distraction but little did they know that their assumptions about the killer were far from true. In fact, they were about to face an even more sinister and merciless version of the Axeman. Yeah, you've definitely gotten a lot more deeper than I've heard before. This is fascinating. Well, now comes the next twist as we go to Chapter 5, A Letter from Hell. It was at this point that the Axeman wanted to introduce himself and wrote a letter to do exactly that. Dated, Hell, March 13, 1919. It wrote, Esteemed mortals, they have never caught me and they never will. They have never seen me for I am invisible even as the ether that surrounds your earth. I am not a human being, but a spirit and a fell demon from the hottest hell. I am what your Orleanians and your foolish police call the Axeman. When I see fit, I shall come again and claim other victims. I alone know who they shall be. 
I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe. Be smirched with the blood and brains of him who I have been sent below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell the police not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way they have conducted their investigations in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as to amuse not only me, but his satanic majesty, Francis Joseph, etc. But tell them to beware. Let them not try to discover what I am, for it were better that they were never born than to incur the wrath of the Axeman. I don't think there is any need of such a warning, for I feel sure the police will always dodge me, as they have in the past. They are wise and know how to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you Orleanians think of me as a most horrible murderer, which I am. But I could be much worse if I wanted to. If I wished, I could pay a visit to your city every night. At will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens, for I am in close relationship to the angel of death. Now, to be exact, at 12.15, earthly time, on next Tuesday night, I am going to visit New Orleans again. In my infinite mercy, in my infinite mercy, I am going to make a proposition to you people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well then, so much the better for you people. One thing is certain, and that is some of those people who do not jazz it on Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. Well, as I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Tartarus, and as it is about the time that I leave your earthly home, I will cease my discourse. Hoping that thou wilt publish this, and that it may go well with these, I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that ever existed either in fact or realm of fantasy, the Axeman. And his legend has rang true. <laughs> While the letter sparked a frenzy amongst the people, fear and paranoia spread like wildfire through the city streets, creating an atmosphere of tension and chaos. And on St. Joseph's night, March 19th, the city was in a state of uproar as residents prepared for the worst. Jazz parties played in every club, and records and radios were all blaring out the same tunes. Desperate measures were taken to protect themselves. It was a night of madness and terror unlike any other in the history of New Orleans. Against all odds, the night passed without a single life being taken. The air was heavy with tension as everyone held their breath, waiting for the promised violence to erupt. But as the sun rose, it became clear that the threat had been kept 
for now. No one could believe their luck or perhaps their fortune in escaping death one more night as belief in the demon known as the Axeman became complete. Chapter 6 No Justice for the Demon Now, New Orleans was under the complete control of the Axeman. And it was on a quiet summer night on August 10th when the deafening sound of a swung axe shattered the peace. Steve Boca slept peacefully in his bed until he was suddenly jarred awake by excruciating pain. He managed to stumble out of his home with blood dripping from a deep gash on his head, desperately seeking help from a friend. Despite surviving the brutal attack, Boca's memory was completely wiped clean, leaving behind only the chilling evidence of a panel chiseled off his door and another bloody axe abandoned in his kitchen. Nothing had been stolen, but fear had seeped into the very walls of his once tranquil home. In the dead of night, September 3rd marked the date that the Axeman struck again. This time, he bypassed locked doors and found his way into Sarah Lawman's home through an opened window. The young girl lay motionless in her bed, battered and unconscious when found. There was deep gashes littering her head, as a final message of terror, the murderer left the bloody axe perched on the windowsill for all to see. The next victim was Mike Pepitone on October 27th. His wife's screams echoed through the house as she stumbled into her husband's room only to be met with a shadowy figure able to flee from the scene almost like a ghost. There was blood pooled on the floor around Mike's lifeless body the evidence of a brutal attack with an axe abandoned on the back porch. The door had been viciously cut open once again, leaving a wound to the otherwise quiet home. The daughter's voice screamed, filling the air as she sprinted for help, frantically summoning Deputy Ben Corsoran. As he burst into the room, he found Mrs. Pepitone standing over her husband's mutilated body the bloodied axe still clutched in her hands. It was the Axeman, she gasped through sobs, her eyes wide with shock and horror. As they rushed Mike to Charity Hospital, it was too late. He died on the way there, another victim of the brutal and elusive murderer now known as the Axeman. Mrs. Pepitone's eyes went wide in terror as she recounted the horror of not one but seemingly two huge men invading her home. She said that their faces twisted in malicious grins and that they had brutally attacked her husband before fleeing into the night, leaving nothing behind but a trail of destruction and fear. Even with eight other people present in the house, the attackers showed no hesitation or fear of being caught. As Mrs. Pepitone spoke to the police, her voice shook with suppressed trauma, and her hands trembled uncontrollably, betraying the depth of her distress. Why didn't they blame her? Paranoia of the community. Everyone bought into the Axeman killing everybody. Because I kind of blame her. There is a very strong suspicion that, yeah, she was using the Axeman to cover up her own attack. Yeah, two large shadows? No. 
In fact, by based on her descriptions, the shadows would not have been able to fit into the opening of the door that they had cut open. So, but was there a killer, a deranged monster, a wicked madman, or a merciless thief existing? Or perhaps something even more sinister and otherworldly? It is still a question that grips the minds of the citizens of New Orleans, who are fearful of what lurks in the shadows. They whisper about the impossible feats committed by this elusive murderer, who was able to remove door panels too small for humans to fit through, and leaving locked doors behind with no evidence of tampering. Could the Axeman be something beyond their understanding, something not of this world? Some whispered that he must be from beyond, with abilities beyond human comprehension. New Orleans was filled with whispers and rumors, each one more chilling and terrifying than the next. People spoke of the Axeman as if he were a demonic force haunting their city with a ruthless thirst for blood for his satanic master. Some claimed to have seen him lurking in the shadows dressed all in black with a slouched hat pulled low over his face. Tall and sinister, he seemed to embody all the traits of a vengeful spirit. Regardless of who or what the Axeman is, his murder stopped without warning, leaving the Axeman to never be identified or brought to justice. It's always fascinating. I mean, the how they couldn't catch him. But, I mean, a lot of the stories, I think, is actually the person who found them. But there's just a lot of the other stories that are just like, what the hell? I hate to say it, but isn't that kind of the motive of demons to stir up trouble and get people to do their evil work for them? Basically. So it kind of feeds it more into the Axeman being a demon that he stirred up this paranoia and fear in the city and then let people do to themselves. Right. Ah. But sadly, I mean, this this case is over 100 years old, so I don't think we're ever going to get an answer as to who the Axeman was. No, there's so many different depictions of it. Well, before we go, I want to remind everyone that we are on social media and would love to hear your stories and opinions about the Axeman of New Orleans. Maybe you have a theory that you'd like to share. You can reach us on our Facebook page, Within the Mist Podcast. We are also on Instagram and have an email at withinthemistpodcast at gmail.com for all of you who would like to share. We hope you enjoyed our story of the Axeman of New Orleans, and we'll come again for another episode. Until then, explore the dark areas of New Orleans carefully and remain constantly curious. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, guys. <laughs>